Today we celebrate the transfiguration of the Lord. It's the end of the season of Epiphany. It's a season that's really bookended by two epiphanies, or manifestations or appearances of God. There's the epiphany of the wise men as they meet the newborn king that we celebrated back in first Sunday of January. And then there's the epiphany today, the one of Peter, James, and John as Jesus is transfigured before them and they see him in dazzling white alongside all stars of the Hebrew Bible, Moses and Elijah. But the story and day in the life of the church also represents a turning point in the gospel and in the church year. From Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain, the rest of the gospel and Jesus' ministry flows downward to Jerusalem, where Jesus will be arrested, crucified, and of course rise again. Transfiguration is celebrated in the church year on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday in the beginning of Lent making this turning point where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. So today uh, also marks the end of our Epiphany season uh, series, Gifts That Keep On Giving, and we finish with a reflection of what it means to be given this gift of a transfigured Jesus as we enter the season of Lent. Starting next Sunday, we'll begin a new series for Lent that focuses on the deep conversations Jesus has with others in the gospel. I've entitled it, Just a Closer Talk with Thee. Forgive the, ja the dad joke in the title. I invite you, friends, now to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the 17th chapter of, of Matthew's gospel, beginning with the first verse. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome with fear. But Jesus came. And touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Transfiguration. It's an odd word to hear today, indeed. Though this day has been part of the church year for generations, we still don't make a very big deal of it. In fact, when most of us think of the word, we are more likely to associate it with the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, in which transfiguration is one of the subjects taught to young wizards at Hogwarts school. Upon arriving at Hogwarts school, everyone's favorite know-it-all Hermione Granger said to a classmate, 
I do hope they start right away. There's so much to learn. I'm particularly interested in transfiguration. You know, turning something into something else. Of course, it's supposed to be very difficult. Throughout the books and films, uh, you see people transfigure things into other things, people into animals and back again, and so on. But here in our lesson today, we see that Jesus is transfigured. And his transfiguration looks a bit different than, than uh, J.K. Rowling would have us presume. So let's understand that a little better and what this means for our faith. To be honest, this is not an easy passage to comprehend, which is why I think the church has not made a whole lot of use of this day in, in the life of the church year. Matthew tells us that Jesus ascends up the mountain with his three favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John, the, the latter two, the sons of Zebedee. Once they reach the top, though, something happens. Jesus is transfigured. The disciples see him in a new light. Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Upon his transformation, two others appear with him as well. Moses and Elijah are there at each side. So why Moses and Elijah? It seems kind of random, but be sure Matthew makes no mistake here. Matthew's audience knew their Hebrew Bible. For one, both of these men received revelations from God on mountaintops, just as uh, we see today. Moses on Mount Sinai, which we actually read in the first lesson, and Elijah at Mount Carmel. Moses embodies and represents the law or Torah because he was the original receiver of this law. While Elijah represents the prophets because he was the greatest of the prophets. That is until now. For the disciples to see Jesus alongside Moses and Elijah confirms his identity as God's own son. But you know, it's more than that. This pairing also shows that God coming to us in Christ is the continuation and culmination of God's total work of redemption in this world. This redemption first shown in the law meant to create a covenant people, then foretold in the prophets the sign of a new covenant. Jesus is transfigured, he's changed alongside these two legendary figures of the faith, showing that he is the culmination of God's past, present, and future action of redemption. We've talked about what happens to Jesus in the story, and that's usually what we talk about on this day in the life of the church, but I want us to talk a bit about the disciples. What happens to them? Jesus is transfigured, and what happens to them? They're all in disarray. They've fallen to the ground. Peter even tries to barter with these three legends of the faith, offering to build them dwellings so that this moment can last forever. But his speech is interrupted by the booming divine voice saying, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. To sum up, Jesus is transfigured and the disciples are simply overwhelmed. Matthew tells us that they're overcome with fear. Why are they afraid? For starters, whenever you see a glimpse of the divine in the Bible, the human response tends to be fear. But I think their fear goes a little deeper than that. 
It seems to me that the disciples are utterly overwhelmed because they know that now things will never be the same again. Their rabbi, their teacher, will never be the same. Who Jesus is to them, who God is to them, has been transfigured, has been changed in this mountaintop moment. Now they know where they need to go next. Jesus will set his face toward Jerusalem. To be sure, Jesus wasn't the only person transformed and changed that day. These disciples were too. They were given a glimpse of the divine Christ, a glimpse of what it means to follow a crucified and risen Lord. No wonder Jesus sternly orders them not to talk about it until after the Son of Man has been raised. They've received a sneak peek of the exalted Jesus. And then these inner circle disciples are ordered not to say anything about it. When I think of this story, I keep thinking of the phrase, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that moment. It's something we often hear people say in iconic moments in history, or simply a moment that happened that was observed only by a select few. I tend to say this in, uh, in relationship with sports. I often say it when my team's losing at halftime, and I wonder what on earth the coach will say to them to pep them up and get them motivated to come back in the second half. I think Matthew crafts his story of Jesus' transfiguration in a similar way. Only James, John, and Peter are able to witness the transfigured Jesus and then are ordered to remain quiet about it. But as readers of the gospel, Matthew allows us to be flies on the wall in this crucial moment. So we need to figure out why that is and why this transfiguration moment serves as sort of a locker room pep talk that we all need as disciples. So Jesus is transfigured and the disciples drop in fear. How does Jesus respond to his weary disciples? Get up and don't be afraid. I love this phrase, definitely my favorite words in the text. Friends, do you mind if I geek out on you a bit? You've been warned. In the original Greek text, in the original Greek text, "egerthete kai me phobeste." This phrase is bookended by two imperative or command verbs, "egerthete" and "phobeste." The first simply means rise, get up. To me, the second command, "phobeste," really helps us understand the first though. It means to be afraid. We get the word phobia from it. But it's preceded by this negative particle, may. May phobeste. It's usually translated, do not be afraid or fear not. If you recall from Christmas Eve, these are the first words spoken in Luke's gospel after Christ's birth. In Matthew's gospel, they're the first words spoken after Jesus' resurrection. They're important words to say the least. But this little word may, I think, is never given the justice it deserves. This little negative particle is more powerful than a simple, don't be afraid. It means not fear, unfear, anti-fear. When you put it with the command before it, I think it gets even more powerful and comes into one statement. Getting up in unfear. I picture when you get up off the ground, particularly in a desert arid climate like Judea, you would need to dust yourself off a little bit, right? It's as if Jesus tells his disciples to get up and dust themselves off of fear. 
the fear that's on them, the fear that's all over them, that's holding them captive. Following his transfiguration, Jesus tells his weary disciples to get up and dust the fear off of themselves. This moment can't last. We can't build dwellings to stay here forever. It's time to get down the mountain and set our sights on Jerusalem. Like these three disciples, we're given this fly-on-the-wall glimpse of the transfigured Jesus that we might be strengthened for the days that are ahead. There's a reason the church celebrates transfiguration on the Sunday before Lent begins. It's a mountaintop moment, a glimpse of Christ's Easter glory before we go down into the valley and the desert and finally Jerusalem. It serves as a sort of pep talk at halftime in our journey through the gospel that we might get a taste of how the story will end to strengthen us down the home stretch. To me, this is what the gift of the transfigured Jesus looks like. It's a reminder of Christ's glory and ultimate defeat over all that stands in the way of God's justice, peace, and love. Not only is Christ transformed on this mountain, but so are we. So are all the disciples. The gift of the transfigured Jesus reminds us that our relationship with God and with one another is forever changed. It's a reminder that no matter what mountain or valley we find ourselves in, God is there with us. Christ is our guide, encouraging us to get up and to dust the fear off of ourselves that we might continue to follow him forward. This is a gift that keeps giving. And it's a gift that needs to be shared in a world that's living in fear and darkness, that all may live in light of the transfigured Christ. So friends, may we keep getting up, May we keep brushing the fear off of ourselves that we can continue to follow Jesus through the mountains and valleys of life. May we follow him to the cross and to the empty tomb that we can see yet again the exalted, transfigured Lord who has defeated sin and pain and death once and for all. May it be so. Amen.